Check. One, two, mic check. That's right, guys. We got a mic. We stepped up the game. It's 2021. Uh, this is episode 11. I'm CJ Hobgood, and you are listening to Salty Stories, the ship's logbook. Um, hope you enjoyed episode 10 of Salty Snacks, bite-sized pieces of stoke. Um, I really enjoyed that. I loved uh, the change of gears, and um, this week on episode 11, but John Dornellis. John Dornellis does dive deep. Wow, he kind of lays it out, dude. He dove kind of deep, man. He dropped some um, some life lessons on us, some breath-holding life lessons. Um, so we hope you guys enjoy, and uh, we talk about his world record halibut that he got down or up in Alaska, um, and a bunch of stuff. I don't know. I really sort of enjoyed this. It felt a little bit different, but um, it was cool. <laughs> Salty Crew Radio presents Salty Stories, the ship's log. Stories about the hard workers, the searchers, the risk-taking, mistake-making watermen who have nothing to prove. About the seafaring, the wax-sharing, the grommets, young and old. About the tried and true, those who've paid their dues. And about those who choose to find refuge in the sea. Yeah, so episode 11 here, we got John Dornellis. How's it going, Salty Crew? Yeah, a.k.a. at I Breathe Water on the Instagram. I always love that um, that handle, that name. You know, John, when I think of you, uh, kind of in order, I go father, husband, teacher, photographer, writer, storyteller, Fee, which is the free drive free diving instructor international. Yep. FII. FII mm-hmm. professional. Um, and then you drove the boats this year, so that'll put you a captain, windsurfer with your dad, hunter, explorer, fisherman, mechanic. That's a pretty big net we just casted. Um, what have you been up to real time? Oh man. Um a bit of all the above. Um you know, I, the mechanic thing, I definitely wouldn't consider myself trained on that, but, uh, I've it's, seen your stories, dude. Dude. Oh man. It's so much fun just getting to build stuff on your own. Like I got that and kind of been, I guess real time, just been trying to like, you know, downsize and trying to be frugal and smart. And so with that comes like, you better learn how to make it or fix it on your own. Um, so I got this 97 T100 and, uh, Toyota and so getting a chance to kind of build that up that it's been a bit of a uh, an effort in necessities because there are no such thing as accessories for that truck so I had to make virtually everything or find a buddy who would help me make it if I couldn't so a lot of that is like you know learn how to weld and do carpentry and um, mechanic work and all that kind of stuff it's more been out of necessity over my life um which in turn then teaches you some pretty priceless skills, which is pretty dope. So I enjoy that. So I guess just trying to be frugal right now and, and smart with, um, you know, smart with uh, income and that kind of deal. Been doing some some teaching. Um, uh, like CJ said, I've been doing uh, quite a bit of instruction for FII, uh, Free Diving Instructors International. I helped to write their spearfishing curriculum. So I just got done last weekend teaching a, a course to a good crew of guys down in South Florida, um, all spearfishing stuff, and um, so that's been that's. Was been this rad. a level one course that you taught? No, so this one is the spearfishing course. I okay. taught another level one course, which is like the foundation for free diving. You know, people will ask me like, "Oh, you know, I've already already been been diving like my whole life," and. I'm like, dude, level one does not mean beginner, which you know, I, you know, I taught, taught you and your wifey and it is not a beginner course, but it is a foundation course. You can teach somebody who's never, you know, they've maybe had a snorkel in their mouth one time and they're able to dive down to 66 feet, just like anybody else who, you know, somebody else who's been, been spearfishing their whole life. The main thing is, is learning how to do it, uh, efficiently and, 
um, and in a way that helps them to be able to conserve oxygen and, and dive cleanly and smoothly. And safety, man. I oh, mean, huge. safety yeah. is, I mean, that's paramount with surfing and, you know, and fishing and, and diving, like, you know, safety never sleeps. You are like mm-hmm. where, you know, okay, you're the cowboy. I get it. You can go a thousand feet, but like, let's just. <laughs> but are you going to come back up? <laughs> yeah, let's do it in a manner where we can dive tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. No, bingo, man. I, so much of it is safety. Like, the spearfishing class ends up being a really good um, class secondary to the, to the level one, but we require people to take the level one first because of the safety stuff. So yeah, in, in the spearfishing class, a lot of it is about, you know, standard gun handling and, and how to dive safely with somebody else, how to do a rescue and, you know, knowing when to drop your gun to be able to rescue somebody else and keep their airway protected, how to make sure that, you know, you never, never take a risk of, of an accidental misfire injuring somebody in the water. And, um, you know, a lot of it sounds like it's, it's common sense, but man, it's, pretty crazy how many guys I've taught who have been around for like a long time they've Mm -hmm. shot and and owned countless spear guns and um I've taught some people who have they they just didn't realize that they didn't know where the muzzle of their gun was aiming and what people don't realize man is like if I have a firearm you've got a bullet there's a primer in there the primer ignites it it ignites powder and then the gases expand and send the bullet down the chamber of a rifle pistol you name it a spear gun when you have that thing loaded this is stored energy as opposed to potential energy so stored energy i could have my finger off the trigger the safety on a spear gun but because that those bands are pulled back um at anything that goes wrong a failure in the mechanism uh, a shaft breaking right at the sear notch in the back of the shaft it's going to fire and the front of the gun can hurt, the back of the gun can hurt, and so being able to treat that spear gun, you know, as as carefully as you can, and you know, it's not just about your life. It's stuff can go wrong pretty dang quick underwater, that, man. That's such a good point. I never even thought of it that way. You know, um, stored en- energy as opposed to potential energy, mm-hmm. um, and both need to be treated in a different manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that no, that's a really good point. And you know, even speaking of that, I know when me and Courtney took um, the level one diving course, we we went into it as like, okay, cool, we'll have a good time and we'll learn a lot. And um, and then I think it was like day one, we're like, whoa, this is marriage counseling. This <laughs> is not a free diving course. We are. And then because of the whole safety side of it, where you're constantly you know, making sure your partner's okay. You're constantly putting the the person that you're diving with above yourself. Are mm-hmm. they? And you're constantly going through that checklist. Um, and those are just relational. It was just so good for for us. We came out of this as like, whoa, that was the sickest thing ever. <laughs> um, as far as uh, and I wouldn't have got that much out of. I wouldn't have got that side of it out of it had she not been there with me and um and then another cool thing was how good of a teacher you were because i mean you have someone that was like you know spent a lot of time in the water and my wife like barely puts her head under the ocean you Mm -hmm. know and we both got to areas that were way outside of our comfort zone and we didn't know we could get to oh dude that was that was such an awesome course man like and i know that we had we had chatted quite a bit prior to that and became buddies before that, but getting, getting to teach you guys and to, when you called me up afterwards and, you know, you kind of told me that it was a, a major strengthening to your marriage and, you know, getting to learn each other a little bit more. I was like, Oh man, that's pretty awesome. I, I, I you know, it was, it was pretty neat. I, I, and I get to see that quite a bit where it kind of like what you were saying when there's, when you are acting as safety for somebody who's diving, especially when it's your spouse or somebody that you you know you know and you care about um seeing them vulnerable or even if they're just acting vulnerable you know if they're acting and pretending to be having a blackout you as the safety responding to that um you know i i I don't know if you remember this after but afterwards i usually ask my students when i'm teaching when i'm teaching them the safety stuff is you know, if I give you the okay, like, yes, that would rescue them. And at the end of the course, if I give you a pass, essentially what I'm, I'm telling you is, is 
is would I trust you to dive with my, not forget me. <laughs> like, like would I, would I trust you to rescue my wife? Mm-hmm. You know, if I wasn't there, would I know that you would keep her protected if she was to have a hypoxic event? And the answer has to be yes. I have to be confident mm. that you would be able to save my, my wife. So, um, you know, as the instructor, I get to see your safety grow, but then getting to see that dynamic between the safety and the diver and especially in mar- married couples, it really is a strengthening thing, you know, and, and getting to share the intensity and the importance of that with you guys that, hey, what this means is I would trust you not just to rescue me, but to rescue my own wife if I wasn't here. Um, you know, I, I think it helps to really put things into perspective. And I've seen a lot of a lot of interpersonal growth between people who either have known each other for a long time, you know, in the case of you and, and Courtney, or people who just met each other, you know, I'll ask them like, do you trust yourself to save that man next to you or that woman next to you? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, do you trust? Um, do you trust them to rescue you? Yes, yes, yes. And it's like, dude, that that's huge. Mm. And so, um, some of the work that I've done with using free diving in mental health work and in addiction recovery work, that's a big part. You know, like we need to feel like we're in a community and in that community, do we trust the people next to us? Well, yeah. And I re- I really do want to get, I'm going to, I'm going to pull this story because I want the audience to know about you. I want, I want sure. them to know. Appreciate let's, it. let's zoom out a little bit here. Um, John, tell us where you were born. Okay. Um, you know, just tell me, give me a good snapshot of, um, of your, of your life and, uh, so the audience can get that, but I do want to go back to um, what you've been doing the last couple of years with using diving um, and the sort of fight or flight mechanism to um, as far as addiction recovery. I'd be happy to, man. Um, so my my dad was born in Angola, Africa, and he he had to flee there during their civil war in the early seventies. Um, were Portuguese descent on my dad's side. My mom is uh, born and raised United States citizen. Wow, that's rad. So, you, oh, good. Could I ask you, um, have you have you spent any time with your dad lately? Just sort of like, because I, I, as you say, you know, Angola, Civil War, I feel like he could, and I'm not saying none of that's happened in America, I'm just saying he could make sense of what's going on a lot, you know? People mm-hmm. in America are like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before, it's gonna, you know, the world's gonna fall. You know yeah. what's gonna happen, um, but I don't know. I just th- I just feel like a, a guy like your dad would be very rich in um, you know experience with what 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 we're seeing in America. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, or I, not? Maybe not. Yeah, no. I I mean, I he's he's spoken a little bit where he came to this country to be able to um, be in a place where you know it would be free from serious political unrest like he had experienced when he was growing up um and and some of what what he's seen is um it's kind of a kind of dual natured i think a little bit and what his views have been and what at least what he's shared with me i mean i guess i'll just put it this way um war is uh war is uh is pretty darn scarring if you've been a been in any way involved a lot of my students have been special forces operators and that's a good point you know you you see you see the scars in them as well as the the lessons learned and you see the scars in my dad and a lot of the lessons learned you know um without getting too much into it he he's shared he shared with me some of his experiences when he was over there hearing the gunfire going off watching mortars blowing up friends you know houses and buildings and um it's ugly man so yeah that's the real side of it that that you know my generation i haven't seen that you know and i don't have trauma from that uh Mm -hmm. but yeah that's i think that's a good point yeah i mean i i think you know if any anyone being willing to call for war um before exhausting any other options you know it, it to me it's um, I think it's really easy to call for war when your experience of war is call of duty. <laughs> it's much, much easier if that is the extent of your uh, experience in that. I, you know, I, I think 
in general, any kind of unrest and seeing what I've, you know, my dad seeing what he's seeing today and me seeing what I'm seeing today. The biggest thing that, um, that worries me at moments is seeing how divisive and volatile people on any quote unquote side can be. What I've been trying to do is like, dude, my, my mantra for 2020 is none of this is a surprise to God. So I'm trying not to let it be a surprise to me. There's a whole lot of forces going on outside of my control. And my first job is to recognize when something's out of my control. And so what is within my control? Well, I can strengthen my family. I can choose who I associate with. I can strengthen my friend group and, and spend my time doing things that enrich the life of my family, my own life, the life of my friends and, and community. And I think what I find, at least in my own life, is the more that I focus on things that I can't control and I let, you know, whether it be a news clipping or a volatile conversation, um, why do I start to feel upset? Or why do I, if I feel angry, upset, or any of that kind of thing, usually if I'm really honest with myself, I start to feel upset and angry when it's not about whatever is being discussed. It's about me feeling out of control. I don't like to feel out of control. Mm-hmm. And I have to be honest with myself about that. If I, feel, if I feel out of control and then I feel upset about that, it may not even be about, you know, climate or politics or any of that kind of stuff it's probably more because i don't like feeling out of control so when i it can when i can acknowledge that accept that all of a sudden it takes that anger edge away mm-hmm. and it lets me actually have the mental capacity and the emotional capacity to kind of reel it back in and refocus that energy on what actually matters and what i do have control on family friends and how I treat the people around me. And I think in general, um, you know, if every single person was able to take a moment, recognize what they can control, what they can't, refocus the energy that they are putting on things they can't control onto things they actually can, families would be stronger. And strong families equal small, uh, strong communities. Strong communities, you know, the microcosms end up controlling the macrocosms, if that's even a word. I don't know if it is, but... No, I just think people would be happier, man. It is true, though. I, um, As you were saying that, I was thinking about my own life, and it's so small and minute, but for me, if, if I like have a lot of stuff to do during the day, and I feel like, like the pressure, you know, valves, like fully whistling, um, and the second something happens out the throughout that day, whether it's my kid doing something or whatever, and then I feel like now I'm gonna not do what I was gonna do today. Now I'm out of control of what I wanted to do. That in me is I'm impatient. I start getting snappy, mm-hmm. um, and it's basically what you said on a very small, like sort of minute um, throughout the day level, just in a very small something. Yeah, you know. Um, but I I uh, I grabbed the wheel and freaking threw it off the side of the road there. So let's go back to oh, your, dude, your no dad um, growing up and moving to America. Yeah. So um, eventually he met my mom. He, uh, you know, to kind of fast forward, my dad uh, fled Angola um, with his family, and because they lost everything, he ended up moving. He had a contact in Belgium. He was working in Belgium. You know working multiple jobs just to basically make ends meet. Um, Long story short, he ended up in in Mexico working at Cancun um, at Club Med. That's where he met my mom who's down there on vacation. Nice. Dude, he was like dark, big afro, and uh, you know, like all you could see, all you could see was his like big bright smile and he would smile because he was like just so suntan. And, uh, and his first date with my mom was when they were sitting down with her whole family. My grandfather was a fighter pilot for the U.S. Navy. And so he's coming down the hill on the skateboard he had made out of a, out of a ski. And he's coming down and it just rained. And as he comes in close to the table, he eats crap. 
And his whole body goes underneath their table they're sitting at, and his hands go on the edge, and he pops his head up, flops in one motion back into his chair. And that was how my grandfather and my grandmother met my dad. So, again, long story short, they end up getting married. My mom fell for this, you know, bronze, crazy, wild man. And, uh, and eventually, they ended up coming to the States. I was born in Virginia. They moved down to Florida to start their windsurfing business together. And my dad's reason for leaving um, leaving his engineering school is because he wanted to spend more time with his kids. And his school was taking him away like crazy. So I was raised, uh, you know, with my parents at at the wherever they were windsurfing for the day. Um, they kind of set up shop in Merritt Island, Florida. So from a young age, I think I was four. My brother was three and my other brother was two. And we learned how to windsurf. My dad was had me teaching and instructing when I was like gosh like 12 13 14 years old and um you know for better or for worse I, I was I learned how to teach um by having my dad essentially like breathing down my neck I could feel him behind me like <laughs> assessing how I was coaching my students at a young age and um, I think naturally, I'm, I'm much more analytical than my brother, Michael, for example. Michael, as analytical as he is, he's much more like just by the seat of his pants, very, you know, e emotion and heart driven, um, which I think I've got a lot of that too. But, you know, I always was jealous of Michael. Um, so Michael is now a, a Discovery Channel filmographer and stuff. He's been very open about some of the struggles that he's gone through. And he's found a lot of healing in being in the water with sharks. And we're both free divers. But uh, Michael, I was always jealous of him growing up because, like, you know, I would be thinking about doing a trick on the windsurfing board or thinking about how I was going to catch my wave when we'd go surfing together, or thinking when we were going to go diving. And he was just like, oh, fish, bang, go and dive. And, and he just was like, no fear, go for it. If I get injured, big deal. Um, so he and I being really close in age, it was cool because I would think about stuff and when it came down time to build a fort together, I would think about the creation and the structure and all that kind of stuff and he was just hammering the nails and bash his fingers and <laughs> you know, whatever. So um but yeah, I you know, I think a little bit of that sense of um being analytical really helped as time went on. Um with the instruction being a teacher, I was an English major in, in, in school uh, where I went. I went in Hawaii to school, Brigham Young University, Hawaii, where I majored and graduated with an English degree. Eventually was a middle school teacher, uh, wrote for a bunch of different spearfishing magazines. And then um, kind of like the culmination of my writing thus far has been getting to write that curriculum for, for spearfishing um, for Freediving Instructors International. And then I wrote a curriculum for... Uh, experiential um, therapy for an addiction recovery center down in Florida. So it, it's kind of cool to see like how the instruction background from my dad, which he was an Olympic windsurfing coach and some of the, the positive sides to having kind of an overactive noggin have kind of played out in, in some of that. So I'm thankful, thankful for that. But no, I mean, as you were telling me growing up in your story and all the things that um that you saw your dad do or you saw your brother do mm -hmm. it really started painting the picture like all the things that you've been prepared for because um you know i see the the not the finished version but the version that's down the the road here and i'm like oh he's such a great teacher you know but as you were telling me those things i'm like okay yeah, that's <laughs> where that's where he saw the example and you know that was um that continued to, you know, um, be watered and, and, and grow throughout your life. Um, let's, let's go into, because I remember you had asked me a few times, um, and we had thought about, uh, last year over the summer to visit you in Alaska. Mm -hmm. Tell me about, tell me about your Alaska trip, how you ended up there. Um, what kind of work you were doing up there? Sort of t tell me what was going sure. on there. We never made it up to visit you oh it's coming <laughs> that that trip needs to happen dude uh alaska alaska's cliche as it sounds it really is the la the last frontier i mean i went out there in 2019 um met some awesome people and they invited us to come up actually i'm more like told them or i asked them like oh can we come visit you in homer and they're like yeah sure so 
I say that we got invited, but I was I was pretty adamant that I'd always wanted to go, specifically to go spearfishing. I just had no idea um, how how a bucket list item like that could just immediately be turned into just a, a quest kind of place. Like bucket list, when you think about bucket list, you think got to do this once before I die. Alaska is not like that. Alaska is like you go and you never want to leave. It's <laughs> unreal. But weren't you there the year before? Were you? There? Yeah. So last year was 2020. That's when I was captaining up there. The year before 2019 is when I first went out. And, um, you know, that, that was when I got to go. I took my family out. Um, I got to catch a, a red salmon by hand up in the river because we're not allowed to dip net up there. The locals can dip net. Um, but we were able to go up and I got into the water with my mask on and <laughs> caught this freaking salmon, pinned him up against the rock underneath this waterfall. And dude, it was unreal. Oh, it was so cool. And I, I just love the cold too. Like I got a chance to go diving up there with no wetsuit on. And dude, the way that it would like kick in, kick in your natural diving reflex, your mammalian dive reflex, you know, like drop your heart rate and all this crazy stuff that happens with your physiology. It all happened at once with that cold water. And I just got, I mean, I got hooked. I'm like, dude, this is not a bucket list. I want to, I want to move here. Tell me, um, I remember seeing the picture. Of, tell me the story about the halibut. I remember I had talked to you a few times, and you're like, oh, we still haven't caught anything. I really been want to get out, but mm -hmm. conditions haven't been that good. And then, dude, like, if it's cold at the top, like, how cold is it when you go down, and how far are you diving? So uh, when I when I actually started paying attention to the the temperature, we would see anywhere from like forty six degrees up to maybe fifty two. So that's like I mean I was diving in a in a five mil um, last summer. I was there in a five mil top, seven mil bottom, and I I didn't even think about my gloves and booties. I'm like ah oh, my hands and feet will be okay, but it was like I had these little two mil booties and my feet look like you know. It looked like tie-dye, dude. It was like greenish looking oh, and gosh. red and white. It was it was scary looking, but dude, the halibut was insane. Um, the whole the whole experience was unreal. I met this guy on the dock. He's in a red sweatshirt. I still don't even know what his name was. And I just asked him like, "Hey, do you know of anybody who could take me out spearfishing?" And he was like, "Well, here's this number for this guy named Matt North." And I'm thinking, Matt North, okay, he's probably running like a charter vessel or something. So I get in a, a phone call with him. He invites me out, and it turns out it's just him and his buddies going out. I, he invited me on this like personal trip to go out, and he didn't know me from Adam. He didn't know what I look like. He didn't. He doesn't even have an Instagram profile or nothing. He's just a really nice dude who invited me to go out to like was one of his halibut spots. Yeah, he's gonna go fishing. Oh, he's gonna go fishing. Okay. Yeah, and it was like some of his buddies. It was his last little trip before some of his buddies were moving up to Anchorage. So they bring me out, and um, they they I'm chilling, taking some photos as they reel some on with uh, with rod and reel. I get a couple of over unders of his boat and that kind of deal. And then he looks at me, he's like, "Dude, get in the water, go!" So I grab my spear and I'm I'm frothing, man. I'm frothing. <laughs> and I'm trying like I'm trying to like re you know release expectations and just kind of yeah. take it as it comes. One of my buddies from um from Fiji, his name's Jaga Crossing, and he told me like. I was like so amped up to go for dog tooth tuna when I was in Fiji visiting him. And I was like, is this the spot? Is this the spot? Are we going to get him? I was like a crack fiend or something yeah, like yeah. that. So excited. And he's like, oh, mate, just going to go suss it out. Just go have a look. And ever since then, I've tried to tell myself that before any dive. Like, okay, I'm just going to go suss it out. I'm just going to go and have a look. Like, you know, this dive doesn't matter. This fish yeah. doesn't matter. There may be something. There may be not. Either way, I'm just going to enjoy the dive. So that's exactly what I told myself. Mm. I take this dive down and it's it's less than 60 feet so it's not like the deepest dive ever by any means what's your visibility uh viz was maybe 12 feet 12 15 feet of okay. viz so it's relatively good for being uh for being um up there we've seen it up to like 60 feet of viz but you know this day was 12 to 15 feet water temp probably about 50 degrees and i do a dive down and um and I had been kicking up against the current to get up current a little bit. So I do this dive down and just kind of nice and calm. I do a dive to the bottom and I kind of just like am slowly creeping along the bottom. And I look over at this rock and I see these two big frog eyes sticking up looking at me. How big is this rock? Uh, it's like a slab, like a big rock slab. Okay. It was big enough to where this whole halibut was laying on top. 
but I see these frog guys sticking up, and then I, my eyes adjust, and I'm able to see through the camouflage, like the size of this thing. So I'm the like, halibut's sitting on top of the you rock. You sit on top of the rock. No way. Yeah. Oh, dude, it's nuts. <laughs> what a, what a... And and the frog eyes are what I what caught me because it was like two big bulbous eyes, and mm -hmm. you know, and and the shape of those was slightly different than everything else I was looking for. Like that was the that was the anomaly that I saw. <clears throat> so I, I'm trying to like set like assess how big this thing is i'm like okay it's probably about like 60 pounds like that's a good fish i'm gonna go and take the shot so i lined up so wait did you come back up no 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 I, this is in the middle of a breath breath okay. breath hold so and i'm lucky enough to where i'm kind of facing him and my buddy ryan moore you know ryan moore he's another mm -hmm. spearfisher um and one of the things that he, he he says is when those guys are hunting halibut down in california you try to pin them from the front so when the fish takes off, it runs up the shaft. That way, like your shaft oh, can fully yeah, deploy. You know sense. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Rather than shooting them and having them immediately run and take a, sh a chance of the the shaft pulling out. This way, you can get penetration, and then as the shaft is moving forward, the fish so, can make so, sure the floppers deploy. So you're trying to come around to the front of him. At this so point. I'm already lined up from oh, the front. Okay. So I I end up like basically aiming for one, trying to get a brain shot because I've heard the horror stories about these things like. <laughs> breaking equipment breaking people's legs like dude people shoot these things with shotguns before they put them on the boat like they don't put them on the boat until they're completely dead and so i'm like oh man i, I, had a big I tail. hope i mean that yeah a dude wide spread uh, in the back well it's like shooting a dang school bus man as it's going by it's crazy not like a school bus with no kids in it obviously i'm, I'm just talking <laughs> about sheer mass i'm thinking big diesel engine a lot of mass yeah no yeah anyway so um so i line up on this thing and I drill this uh, eight mil double flopper shaft right through his head. Um, I was using a, a Rife Marauder 47, three bands, eight mil shaft, double flopper with a reel. And um, penetrate uh, through his head, I get a good shot, and then I see him come up off the rock. And it's like the silt starts draining off of him. And I just see the mass of this thing like, now you're getting... up in front of me. I'm like, little boy, dude, that thing's way bigger than 60 pounds. And it, it it just starts going. And unlike, you know, when I've shot tuna or wahoo or other pelagic fish, like stuff that's got a lot of power, they just zoom off when they go. But this halibut, it took off, but like a thousand horsepower diesel takes off. Like so much <laughs> torque, man. And it just starts pay in line out and disappears off into the murk i get to the surface and my real lines going 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 and i'm trying to kind of take put on the brakes and and swim with them but you know not not drag too hard so i start fighting him i i eventually get him up close to the surface he kind of takes a little bit of a break i get him to the surface my knife is out and instead of trying to grab onto him because he's clearly not dead <laughs> I try to jam my knife into him to uh, to take a kill shot, and he comes right back to life, and go, it goes all over again, like dragging out line. This goes on like multiple times. At this point, I've, I've stabbed him what I thought was the brain, like, dude, like six times at this point. I finally get him up, and when I, when I struck the knife into him uh, like the seventh or eighth time, I'm gassed, dude, and... Uh, I think now at this point, like, okay, finally he's subdued. So I jam my hands up into his gills and grab onto his gill rakers. And I'm and now at this point, you and any other fish, if I've got my hand in their gills, it's done. Like they submit, you take a final mm. brain shot with your knife, the fight is over, you just gotta get him to the boat. But this thing, I, I've got my hand in his gills and, and as I think I found his brain, as soon as I put my knife away, I feel his pharyngeal jaws. That's like that secondary jaw set in the back of their throat. It starts mm -hmm. chewing on my pinky. His whole gill plate clamps shut over my arm. So now I'm like stuck on this thing and it just starts bucking me like a bronco. So now I'm bear hugging this hunt at this. I didn't know it was this big. It was a 150 pound fish. Oh I'm bear hugging gosh. the sucker. I'm down current of the boat, <laughs> swimming with all my might back to the boat and uh and i eventually get all the way back to the boat just bear hugging the sucker as it's like kicking me in the stomach and you know the man bits and uh and i'm just gas and i just told him like don't freaking gaff me please don't gaff me and so i i grabbed the gaff you're still up. stuck i'm basically. still stuck on this fish yeah. and my hands like you know i'm up to my elbow and this thing's gills 
So I grabbed the gaff tip and I hook it in a good spot and then I had them Gave pull it, it up. Him, yeah. yeah, and then they were able to drag, basically drag the fish off my arm and get it up onto the deck. And the coolest thing was like, you know, this is a group of guys who aren't really spearfishers, but they just erupted. Like, dude, they were so stoked to have this thing come up and they're like, like, like they're, uh, like and they didn't that know, was so cool. They didn't know you from Adam, so they were like, "What's freaking yeah, cowboy well, John?" Up then they to? saw this dang thing come up on the boat, but it was just really, really cool, man. I, I love being able to like either be the guy that's rooting somebody else on, or when you're with a group of folks, like all there's no ego. Everyone's just pumped for everybody else, and in this moment, like they were just they were stoked. So we got it in, we got it weighed. And at that point, I knew for sure. I'm like, I was able to land this thing with a single shot. We got it on. We got it properly weighed, properly measured. And I knew at that point, as long as there was no, you know, logistical issues, um, it would be the world record. So that's the standing, that's the standing world halibut speared record no for the Pacific way. halibut, which is one and done. Drop the mic. You just go down for your first nah. look. See, no, not one. Well, I guess that was though. I mean, that was my first time seeing a halibut underwater. <laughs> It was the first dive of the day, and dude, go go suss it out worked. The the best part about that story that I have in my mind that I'm trying to um, envision is you're you're down at the bottom, this rock, and these two frog eyes on top of the rock. I think that is just a picture that um, that really only you have, but it seems like a really cool moment in my in my mind as you told the story i can see it i can see it like it just happened man it's the miracle (laughs) of the human brain being able to record everything long-term memory when you're in the Mm. middle of a hunt like i can see that like it just happened open mouth too that is so crazy and then so this year you were were you running captain in a boat um taking people or yeah yeah, so I, I, um, I. This is still in Alaska. This is still in Alaska. So basically, fast forward about eight months, I was offered a job at Coldwater, Alaska. I went up there and was their captain um, all summer of 2020. So the most uncertain year of all time for tourism yes. because of the COVID thing. Nobody wants to travel. And what was so cool is I got to run these awesome landing crafts. They were uh, these Bay Weld aluminum landing craft boat, 32 foot meticulously maintained by cold water and i got to go out there and and what was so cool is we didn't have the out-of-state tourism that normally they would have Mm. but all the alaskans who you know they've been waiting for this opportunity to go and like enjoy their own backyard and now they've got it yeah because they work yeah every day nine to five so they're like so now you got all these people that they come down to homer and and people who lived in alaska and never been across the bay Kachemak bay and they were, uh, it was really cool, man. Really, really uh, great people coming down and visiting. And uh, I worked with amazing people. And all the guys that I worked with, they all spearfish. So we were getting to explore places that nobody has ever seen the bottom at. No way. Yeah. Unreal spots, like 1,500-pound sea lions just bum-rushing you and oh. doing acrobatic moves around you. And, you know, never they wouldn't let you touch them. They wouldn't try to touch you, but they would... They would yeah, man, it was it would get your blood moving a little bit. Oh man, I bet you because you don't know. I mean, everything's big there, so whatever's mm-hmm. coming is gonna take your breath away. Yep. Oh yeah. Whether it's the stuff underwater, like, um, and we had um, we had the Rife team come out this summer. Um, Joel Olnick and Ryan Ryan Moore and uh, Mike Raby and um, and then a, a couple of other. Uh, Group, uh, another group of awesome guys too but they came out and we um dude it, and this is kind of what i told them like dude what i'm most excited for you guys to see is like when you come up from a dive there it, like what you just said everything's big right when you come up from a dive there's no sound of cars there's no sound of planes there's no smell from anything but like the animals there the pine trees and just the freshness of the air and then your eyes are looking up at like the side of a mountain and dude it is so it is so overwhelming when you first get there and honestly after i don't even know how many countless dives i made there this summer and the summer before it is never 
the the breathtaking nature of it just never goes away. Mm. It is unreal. I'm I imagine every sense is on a level ten. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Whether you're smelling it or mm-hmm. seeing it or hearing it or feeling it, um, yeah, that's that's so rad. And then um, let's go back to, you know, you enjoy free diving, your instructor, and then you end up moving down south mm-hmm. and um essentially for the last two years you were in an addiction recovery house you know helping people get over their addictions mm-hmm. um tell us even how that came about what you found out when you were there um and is it really like you know, putting, injecting fight or flight or injecting survival into a situation that can ultimately heal trauma or, I don't know, I'm sort of just freestyling, right? Sure, no, no, I, and that's 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 really, really, well, I'm pretty darn spot on. Um, I was hired by an addiction recovery facility down in uh, South Florida to help them with their experiential therapy work. So, um you hear this word experiential mm-hmm. therapy um, starting to get thrown around more mm-hmm. and more. Um, what does does that mean? Because the way I understand that is it's it's you're essentially like practicing or role playing. Is that? Um, no, not not so much like with the the practice and role play. I mean, a, 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 aside from with free diving, for example, you're pretending that you're rescuing each other. The idea with experiential therapy is. Um, is you're giving experiences to uh, to somebody who is in need of um, of kind of overcoming their substance use disorder. Experiential therapy can be work can be uh, used pretty much anywhere in the mental health field. So um, one of our mutual friends, for example, my first introduction to free diving being used to help um, folks with with um, working through mental health, um, personal issues, uh, we started doing level one freediving courses, um, like retreats. We would do men's mental health retreats, essentially. And, um, and what, that, what, that was, what that kind of opened my eyes to was kind of what we were talking about earlier, where they're able to build this really neat sense of community because the, the trust comes on um, really fast when you're having to rescue each other. Um, even though you're just doing pretend rescues, you're still learning how to save the life of somebody else. So that kind of got my wheels turning a little bit. And when I was hired by this company, I started to do um, something called Rock Walk, which in the big surf world, uh, I mean that's that's as old as you know as old as the sun in terms of to how do you increase your breath hold? Well, go down, grab a chunk of rock, and walk in the bottom, and see how long you can go for. What's fascinating about that is essentially that is a that is a free diving exercise. So we we obviously train the guys up. They got to learn you know how to rescue so that each is other. All that essentially experimental experimental therapy, just in that that little exercise. yeah. I mean I mean providing and experiential therapy can be gosh it can be rowing canoes, going fishing, horseback riding, mm-hmm. going paintballing. I mean there's some there's some addiction recovery facilities that you know the the term experiential therapy is thrown around for things that are maybe um a little bit less therapeutic than than something that is specifically geared like like what we're talking about with free diving um experiential therapy is a pretty broad term okay. it is basically what can we do with these guys to help them to have an experience and then bring it back and process this with their therapists like how do we Help them to get to know themselves better and then learn from themselves and grow as a result of this experiential properly processed. And, okay? and you, while you were down there, you wrote a curriculum. Uh, yeah, I assisted in, in writing an experiential curriculum, which much of it was geared around freediving. So, um, what did you find out that? Um, was it the free diving or was it the injecting sharks into the arena? Yeah, or? I would do shark. Man, gosh, I would I would take the guys shark diving. I would do as much as many free diving activities as I could with the guys, and and a lot of this was 
was because I, my my gears were turning in my brain watching um, watching free diving really making an effect. My own um, I have some really close contacts without saying any names um, who prior to any of my experience using freediving to help mental health, um, they they showed um, uh, a profound change in their life using therapy, um, therapy and counseling as well as freediving, shark diving. And, and this just started raising questions in my mind, like, what is this? What do I need to focus in on here? What do I have to discover about this? So with, with my work in the addiction recovery world, um, I would take them spearfishing. We would go and do rock walk, like the big wave surfing training stuff, and a bunch of other stuff. And, um, and what I found as time went on was one of the reasons is obviously building community and trusting self, trusting others. Um, and then you mentioned fight or flight earlier. Well, <clears throat> the urge to breathe, I think pretty much all of us have, have felt the urge to breathe. The urge to breathe is, is a physiological response to high levels of carbon dioxide. So when we hold our breath and we start to feel our breathing muscles tighten and our head starts to go crazy, um, that, that feeling that we get that gets us to come up and take a breath of air in most people is based on high levels of carbon dioxide. It's a limbic response. It's an animal response. So that manifests itself in, in your diaphragm and your intercostal muscles tightening. And it's a really uncomfortable thing to feel when you're underneath the water holding your breath. Big wave surfers experience this. And, and so there's been a lot of training around like, how do we get more comfortable holding our breath in the water? Well, long story short, um, I, I asked myself the question, like, why do people come up for breath when they know what the urge to breathe is? If, if you know that the urge to breathe is based on high levels of carbon dioxide, and yet you come up anyway, knowing that you've still got plenty of oxygen stores, why do you actually come up? Well, maybe it's just because it's uncomfortable. Or maybe there's something more going on, and and I started asking these questions, like, and I started paying attention too to how my my mind works when I'm in the middle of a breath hold. And that's something you're really good at too. Is when I took that dive class with you, you could just look at my eyes, or look at my um, <laughs> you, or look at you know something that was going on with my body, and you would know hey, don't do that, you know, and you would just mm -hmm. do some hand signals and be like, oh yeah, I didn't even know I was doing that. You ought to work with you on like, yeah, relaxing your neck, relaxing your muscles and mm -hmm. yeah, so that so you're not yeah, burning you, oxygen and, so and fast. I, and, and sorry to cut you off there, but you can see these things. So you could see these things. So you started asking them the questions. Yeah, I would ask them, but a lot of it was just me, uh, was me like trying to figure out what what are they thinking about when they actually come up. So I, with the rock rock, for example, that was one of the ones that was more profound. Like I had guys after the fact reach out to me and say like, dude, if we hadn't done rock walk, I'd be dead right now. Yeah. Why, and, do, you, why do you say that? Oh, uh, guys who were struggling with heroin addiction and whatnot, um, they had a very low pain threshold. A lot of the guys struggling with heroin addiction, I'd get them either into the pool or into the ocean and we'd be doing a rock walk exercise. They'd grab a 45 pound weight. They would take a couple steps and immediately drop the weight and come up. So we would talk about this. I'd be like, dude, listen, what you're feeling is your urge to breathe. Your urge to breathe is based on high levels of carbon dioxide. But what's your brain telling you? Oh, that I need to breathe or I'm out of air or, mm -hmm. you know, screw this or whatever. And I'd be like, hey, let's break this down. If the urge to breathe is a limbic response, this is your animal brain running here. The limbic response that you're experiencing, it parallels an addictive response, which is also in the limbic system addiction is something that resides to, I mean, to keep it simple, but addiction resides in the animal brain, in the limbic brain. And when we are triggered in a certain way, some of us were able to just kind of like, oh, I just need to go for a run and then I'll feel better. Mm. For somebody who struggles with substance use disorder, when they get triggered, their survival, their fight or flight, essentially, their, the first place their fight or flight goes, their animal brain goes, is that drug of choice, that mm. behavior of choice, whatever that is. And in the case of some of these addicts, the heroin, the heroin addicts, 
um, that I was working with, why, why in the world would they drop the weight so quickly? Well, it's because they're so used to believing that little animal voice in their head. Mm-hmm. They just think that it's got their best interest at heart. Well, that's the same voice that would get them to use. It's the same voice that oh, okay. in all of us, like, you know, we get, we get triggered by something and we turn to a, 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 uh, a, a behavior or a substance or whatever that is just becomes a knee jerk. In their case, it's a substance of mm-hmm. choice. So they experience the urge to breathe, limbic system fires, and it's based on high levels of carbon dioxide, remember. They come up, I ask them, why'd you drop the weight? Oh, because I needed to breathe. Oh, because I needed more air or, or a, a, an array of different types of inner thought that they would have. Mm-hmm. I said, well, let's talk about the urge to breathe. You are experiencing high levels of carbon dioxide. Your brain is telling you you're out of air. Well, fifth grade, Mrs. Crabapple taught you the physical physiological process of respiration. Your brain has this information in the past that if it scares you enough, it will get you to do what it wants you to do. If it gets you to feel something strongly enough, you can do whatever it'll ask you to do as long as you believe that inner voice. So in this case, it tells you you're out of air. You interpret that as I need oxygen. Needing oxygen means needing that life-sustaining gas. And if I don't do this, I'm going to die. The urgency, the feeling is I'm going to die, Mm -hmm. right? Well, here's what's crazy about it is that little animal voice telling you you need to breathe is not telling you you need to breathe to get oxygen. It's telling you you need to breathe to off-gas carbon dioxide. But it's telling you you need oxygen. It's telling you whatever it needs to tell you because it wants you to drop your carbon dioxide levels. So in other words, as soon as you experience the urge to breathe, whatever that head game that starts getting played, you can pretty much guarantee it's a lie. And for a lot of these guys, they, that was their first realization that their brain can lie to them, that their animal brain will tell them anything that it, that, that it can to get them to fail, to get them to give into what it wants. And in that case, it's just to get rid of carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. But it parallels telling them whatever it can to get them to use, to get them to yell or to be angry. You know, there's a whole bunch of these automatic responses that we have. So round two of rock walk now, now they know what the urge to breathe is. They know their brain can lie to them. Their limbic brain can lie to them. So round two and round three is um, walk until you can't go anymore. As you're about to drop the weight, regrip the weight. Just start counting steps. I want you to count to five steps. So now what does this do? Instead of the brain being able to tap into your fifth grade teacher's information and use that against you by telling you lies, when you feel that craziness and you hit that wall at, at that point where the mind is going to be going, it's going to tell you the same. It. You're refocusing it instead of on the past voices of whatever you've already got in your brain. You're refocusing Trauma, it. Exactly. You're refocusing all of your, your mental control on the here and the now. So now step one, two. You're not thinking about step five when you're taking step one. You're just foot is on the ground. I'm focusing on step one. It is a perfect practice of mindfulness. Feel the ground and it's just one, two, three, four, five. Drop the weight, mm-hmm. come up, take your breath. You're totally okay. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is all the same lies were being told through those five steps and yet they still held their breath. So as the guys get to learn how to meet their walls and fight through them, um, really what it does is it disarms that animal brain and it at least gets you to understand that there's more to you than just this automatic, this animal brain, this limbic system that um, for many of us has taken control of some part of our life. I feel like you gave them a real tool. So like a really, really, really real tool that they could use and apply that for when that that urge okay mm-hmm. that they needed that mm-hmm. and that's pretty cool man dude it's it, it, it still gives me it still gives me chicken skin i like really I, en- I mean i just thoroughly enjoyed you breaking that down that oh was, happy to do it man it helps me out dude you and i should go do that sometime actually it, it, you know john it's funny i started getting into running 
and it's the same thing your brain tells you to stop Mm -hmm. and it puts up such a good fight and i i've like i've had it i got it down it's like between you know two and four miles the fight that it puts up and then it finally gives up and then you get all this coolness on the other end of that you know and and then it just becomes like as long as you keep your heart rate at a certain level you know and then put fuel in and you've sort of the engines there you know then you just got to over time build up the chassis and then you can kind of keep going but it's these same things mm-hmm. that you learn in these tools and what's available um and it's different for us right we know the water we've surfed or we've dived or we've, we've known that thing but to be able to for me i you know i never ran but for him to took those real tools and bring them over to other areas of my life was really cool for me mm-hmm. and i feel like um, it was more of an example of um, less about me r- running, more of an example about <laughs> you get them requiring tools mm-hmm. and, and giving them tools to, you know, not only use it for, you know, when those um, feelings come, but also be able to use those for other areas of their life. Yeah, you know? Um, oh, it's, dude, I'm telling you, it's something at this, and especially with knowing what I know about. Um, yeah, and what I know is so minute compared to people who are expert experts in the field. But from what I know about the way the way the mind works, the way my mind works, I still every time I go and do like a rock walk exercise, and I do like a free diving exercise. In that case, it still is a a challenge to me to be mm-hmm. able to like um, to feel something so uncomfortable and endure some of that mental anguish. Um, and then push a little bit beyond. It's still it's still something that I need to build up my armor a little bit. I really I I like that too because I feel like Laird Hamilton sort of hijacked uh, running with the rock and made it like not very cool. So I never did it. But now that you've explained <laughs> it like this, I'm like, dude, I gotta go do that. You know, um, uh, just because what's available, all the benefits on the other side of breaking through those areas um well knowing why too like why is this actually something that benefits me it's not just about building up your co2 tolerance that's like the most surface explanation of that as there can possibly be Mm. what does that even mean no it's not just building up your co2 tolerance it's helping you to be able to experience co2 tolerance in the form of a limbic response the urge to breathe and then hijacking that and taking control again with a different part of your brain that is much more logical and much more able to see the forest from the trees and just be as simple as possible. Just step another step, man. Take another step. And in doing that and understanding, here's what my brain is trying to do. What do I do to be able to ignore this voice and push that automatic part of me away? Because none of us want the lizard brain running the show. <laughs> but <laughs> so you know, how do we figure that out? But the, when I say what's available, I'm saying it's not that it's it's not the the substance chemical that man's made. You know, it's mm-hmm. the substance and chemical that's in your brain that gets released, and you get that drug that's in the form of I don't even know what all those words are, endorphins and dopamines, and you get that drug, and then you're going, and then you start to chase that, and then mm-hmm. then the freaking you know little lizards not running the show yep um and that's uh you could pull a lot of different strings there obviously but that's uh that's that's really really cool another one before we we tried to wrap this up um i wanted to touch in on this camp that you do because once again it's like i sort of go back to like you know you've been prepared for all these things and i see you know photography and um and obviously i you know you're, you're handing that down to your kids but like um i was really and i never had a chance up there to go up there and see you but used to run those camps in new york for mm-hmm. those kids where essentially you'd give them real life uh t- tell me about that the skills and the tools sure. and everything that they learned yeah i i ran a water sports program for kids for 13 years up there on fisher's island and um and it's right off the coast in New London, Connecticut. But 
I came in originally is just to teach. Is there anything on this island? How big yeah, is yeah. It? No, okay. I mean, there's there's some people who live on there year-round, and that, but most of the populace is, you know, people from the city and elsewhere in the United States who come up there for their summer homes. Okay. And so, um, but I was originally hired out there to teach windsurfing, and, and by the second year, I was I was running running the program there. And, uh, and then I had my, my good buddy, Darvel McBride, he came out and he was my roommate in Hawaii. We were, we knew each other really well from, you know, spearfishing and surfing and, you know, we sailed across the Atlantic ocean together in 2011. And, um, so he, he helped me out out there and we, we essentially built a program out there that was around teaching windsurfing, kayaking, stand up paddle surfing, sailing, surfing, you name it. But what was the most fun for us was to take the kids on these adventures where we'd get in the kayaks and we'd disappear all day long every Saturday. And so you'd have these, you know, you'd have a lot of kids that the parents wanted them to experience something other than, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, four walls and video games and kind of cut and dry childhood life and, and get them to learn how to do some pretty basic stuff. So we'd like, dude, we'd go and, and we'd spearfish with them and, build a fire on the beach and show them how to make like really rudimentary fires and just eat and stuff. And the coolest thing was watching these kids that, you know, um, they would, they would grow calluses in our program on their hands, you know, that means sick. you did your job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so dude, I'd, I'd always like challenge the kids like, okay, who's going to eat the beating fish heart. And so I'd cut like a striped bass fish heart out and be beating in my hand. And then there would always be one or two kids that want to volunteer and, <laughs> So we like, you know, crabs and all sorts of stuff, building crazy forts with the kids, you know, and we'd always just try to let the kids like, let them learn how to use a hammer and nails and find some driftwood and make some insane fort and, um, survive. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Something that taps a little bit more into who they are as, as people like at the core, you know, hopefully this doesn't, um, steer the conversation too much but I always love I, I heard this um, uh, I don't know if it was a stat or what but they said um, a younger kid like if he gets trapped in rubble or if he gets stuck out in the um, wilderness a younger kid has so much more um, higher chance of surviving than the teenager kid hmm. because the um, the young kid just lives in the moment. Like you see them pulling like young kids after like four days out of rubble, like really young kids. I don't know if you've ever seen this or recognize. Yeah, it no, that's actually a really good point. Because the teenager that. can go to not in the moment and they go to, oh my gosh, they're not going to find me. And their, their brain trails off to in the future, you mm -hmm. know? And, but the kid stays in the moment. What yeah. do I need right now? What do I need? at this moment they don't the young kid doesn't think i mean think about when you're a kid to see a week hey don't we're gonna have fun on the weekend like the weekend was so far away mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying yeah and i always thought that was fascinating and um uh that they can they can survive better just because they live in the moment and kind of like what you were talking about with the rock thing it's like no i just need to get you back in the present yeah and you'll you'll survive longer and mm -hmm. then you give them some tools. So, no, dude, yeah. that I think that's spot on, man. And that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Some somewhere along the way, we we kind of lose. They say we lose like that youthful exuberance, right? And I think a lot of that it's not about getting older. It's more about like allowing experience to skew how we will view our future. If we have no experience, uh, if we have no past experience of of failure and perceived you know, perceived failure, perceived pain or any of that kind of stuff, it's much harder for us to be able to apply that pain to our future. And it makes sense that at teenage years, which are hard, <laughs> goodness gracious, um, that we would at that point start to apply some of our, our heartaches to our future and then build this doom and gloom. And dude, I, I, one of the experiential things I took, um, took a group of guys to, we went to this uh, Thai Buddhist monastery and just to kind of I, I wanted the guys to learn a different form of meditations like dude whatever you guys learn from this awesome mm -hmm. and this like dude, this guy comes out in his orange robe you know just like <laughs> you'd see in, on, in the movies and and one of the things that has stuck with me so much man he, he said because he would see like some of the guys they would have a really hard time being there in the moment 
and we would do like this walking meditation thing. And so one of the things he said, he said, you can't, you can't change the past. You can't predict the future. So just be here. You know, I, I think I'm butchering it a little bit, but essentially that's mm. what it is. Yep. You can't change the past. You can't predict the future and you can't control the future. So be here. Yeah. Be here. Be now. And, um, and I just think that's so dang spot on, man. If we can learn from that, that really kind of circles it back to what we started about in the beginning is this idea of, man, like when we feel like we're out of control, it's it's misery. Misery is directly attached to being and feeling and focusing on the things that we can't control mm. and can't control the past and you can't control the future. So yeah. find a little bit of solace in being here now, like... Um, I think a lot of our youthful exuberance could be renewed yeah. by us having that focus rekindled. Well, no, that's it. Look, and I think that is a great, great way to sort of put a put a bow on this, and you know, sort of lay to bed here. But um, yeah, the daily act of you know just being here, just me or you, dude. Yeah. And, um, I was in. I was in this, dude. I wasn't yeah. thinking about other stuff. I enjoy I was this. Here. Dude. Actually, you know, the only thing I've been thinking about is like, I want to hit stop on this so I don't lose it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. See, it's because you're fearful of the future yeah. of the thing getting uh, erased. I'll uh, tell you what. There's a couple of times I caught myself. I'm like, there's a couple of times where I'm like, I wonder how this is going to be perceived. I wonder where this is going to go. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you're sitting down with one of your buddies, talking story. Come back come back yeah, you know right. oh, oh man me too uh, this the fight or flight of me wanting to hit stop right now <laughs> so i don't lose this is i'm just gonna sit here for a second thank you for listening to salty stories the ship's log presented by salty crew and hosted by the sage cj Hopkins. to see the trips that were mentioned check out thrill seekers and risk takers the movie on youtube or salty-crew.com Keep an eye out for more Salty Stories episodes coming soon.